All right, Isaiah chapter 44. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. You'll want to follow along so that the Lord can minister to you right from the word as we're here this morning. Isaiah 44, we're looking at verses 1 through 20. The topic, the Lord calls his chosen people Jeshurun for the first time since Moses was alive. Title of the message, God is a name changer. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this word this week. It's what you want us to hear. We trust, Lord, that by your spirit, each of us will hear in our heart of hearts that which is most meaningful and needful about your love and grace and mercy in our lives. That this message, though, though it's a, about something, it's about someone, though it's historical and accurate, it transcends that, Lord. It's the word of God that can minister to us the grace of Jesus Christ. And boy, do we need that in today's world, Lord. Your unmerited favor so that we might be content as the rest of the world is confounded. Be our teacher this morning, Lord, as you promised you would be. You said when you left, you'd send the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to be our teacher. And Lord, you also said that he would convict of sin those who don't know you. We assume, Lord, that there are a few people, maybe more than a few, that don't know you here today. May today, Lord, they experience the freedom of the will to receive you as their Savior. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Lamb chop, pumpkin, nugget, muffin, snookums, pookie, and chickadee. Brides Magazine is usually a rock-solid source, but they biffed it this time. The names I read are on their 2023 list, not their 1965 list, but their 2023 list of sweet, romantic, quirky names. The article in Bride says, if you're in need of a little inspiration, we've got you covered. We rounded up the very best nicknames from the totally timeless to the trendy and new school. Now, I apologize if any of you are using any of those names, but you, you shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> I say go full Seinfeld and call each other Schmoopy, right? The Lord reveals an endearing name that he had given the nation. It jumps out at you in verse 2. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. The folks doing good work at gotquestions.org write, Jeshurun is a poetic reference to the nation of Israel. It is a term of endearment. The name is used three times in the book of Deuteronomy and once in Isaiah. In each case, the name occurs in a poetic setting and refers to Israel, God's beloved people. Now, if Moses died around 1450 BC and Isaiah was prophesying around 450 BC, then the Lord hadn't used that name for about a thousand years. And so he had this endearing name for his people, not the only one but one of them, and he hadn't used it for a long time. Here's a kicker for us. Jesus is going to give you and I a new name in the future, each of us individually. I'll organize my comments this morning around two questions. Number one, are you looking forward to being renamed? And number two, are you living forward like you'll be renamed? Let's take a look at looking forward in verses one through eight. 
If you are in Christ, if you are a believer who's been saved by grace through faith, Jesus has an endearing name for you. In Revelation 2.17, Jesus said, to him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone, and on this stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. No longer will boys named Sue have to fight their way through life. (laughs) Verse 1, you hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. What's the origin of the nation of Israel? For that matter, where did nations come from? Well, in response to mankind's rebellion at the Tower of Babel, the Lord confounded languages and they were forced to scatter all over the face of the earth. It resulted in 70 nations. You can read the table of the nations in the book of Genesis. The Lord started a new nation through which his Garden of Eden promised to mankind of sending a redeemer would be fulfilled. That chosen nation is Israel through the 12 sons of Jacob. Verse 2, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, from whom I have chosen. Is it strange to think of a nation as being formed from the womb? Well, not really. We often say a nation was born, right? Or we talk about the birth of a nation, The Lord was reminding them that they were his nation to carry out his plan. And in that sense, they could be seen as one. They should act as one man, as it were, with this fantastic message of the coming Savior. Jeshurun means righteous one. Every man, woman, and child is born in unrighteousness. They're not right with God. There is none righteous, not one the Bible says, how then can the Lord call the unrighteous righteous? God became a man. He added deity to his humanity, or humanity to his deity, rather. When Jesus, the God-man, died on the cross and spectacularly rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. As a result, when you believe God, he declares you righteous because of what Jesus did. Quoting Genesis 15, 6, the Apostle Paul said, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is how everyone has gotten saved from the Garden of Eden up through now, through the future, until everyone is saved and we are in eternity. You believe God and it's counted to you, it's accounted to you as righteousness. It isn't that Old Testament believers got saved by keeping the law or that in the tribulation there's going to be a different way of getting saved. You believe God and it's accounted unto you for righteousness. And that's an accounting term. It's like a a ledger term where you would account for things in a ledger. If you're a fan of the Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, you remember that Black Widow more than once mentions that she had what she called red in her ledger. She was trying to do some things to to overcome some of the bad things she had done, some of the red that was in her ledger, so, so that it would balance out. And that's actually the good uh, the idea here. God says, "If you believe me, I will remove sin from your ledger." When you open up your ledger and it's just one black spot of sin, He says, "I will take that whole page that represents your whole life, and I will give you in its place." a completely white ledger uh, that has no sin on it, 
And I will see you that way because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're still a sinner. God justifies sinners. You now are a believing sinner, right? And that makes all the difference. Because now that you believe God, he counts it towards righteousness. And that is what you find in your ledger. One of the results Jeshurun was promised also is that the Lord would give them a new heart and put a new spirit in them, that he would take out their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. They would be born again, we would say, and and have this new heart and this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Jewish officials who rejected Jesus on behalf of the nation chose to keep their stony, stubborn heart. This was made abundantly clear by Stephen, the first martyr of the church. He said to those Jews about to stone him, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so they, they didn't get that heart that the Lord had promised them. It's still in the future. After a few decades of continued outreach to his beloved Jeshurun, God pivoted. The Apostle Paul quoted Isaiah to the Jews and their leaders and declared God's interim plan. He said, therefore, because you've turned away from the Lord, because you don't want to have anything to do with the Lord and his plan, let it be known to you that salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And so Paul says flat out, he says, hey, it's been decades. You continue to reject the Lord. The Lord is going to send the gospel out to the Gentiles. And oh, man, the Jews hate to hear stuff like that, right? Because they hated the Gentiles. And yet Paul says, that's that's the deal now. The Gentiles are going to come in and they are going to be born again. And they are going to have this heart that Ezekiel promised you while you watch. This period of time that we're talking about, or you say this dispensation, is now. We're in the church age that began on the day of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit to uh, infill us. And it continues until the church is removed in the rapture. Regarding Israel, we sometimes say something like, well, God has set aside his chosen people for a time. Well, that's true as long as we don't don't think that that means God's not doing anything with Israel. They're not just completely on hold. Obviously, if you look at our world today, a lot is going on with Israel, right? God is uh, doing a lot. He's at work with them. They're a witness to the centuries-old prophecies that they would be gathered to their land as a nation in the last days. They're a witness to the centuries-old prophecies that they will be gathered in unbelief, not believing that Jesus is their Messiah. And they're a witness to the centuries-old prophecies that they would be troublesome to all the nations of the world. And so it isn't that God isn't dealing with Israel at all. He's dealing with them differently than he has in the past, giving Gentiles the blessing that was theirs. And they are moving into position for God to bring them to himself. And so there's a lot going on with Israel. On a more intimate note, the Lord's work saving Gentiles is said to provoke Israel to jealousy. Paul, the apostle, explained, he says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And so it's it's a typical jealous situation here where God says, hey, you, you don't love me. You think you do, you have the law, you go through these, but you don't really love me, and so I'm going to call a people to myself who do love me. And, and it inspires Israel to jealousy. 
which will eventually lead them to salvation in the great tribulation. Okay, and so there's a lot going on. Some weeks I feel like I don't need to do my prophecy update because Isaiah is a prophecy update, writing thousands of years before these things happen. Verse three, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. What a really great poetic piece of scripture this is. Uh, Water on him who is thirsty floods. Obviously, we're talking about the the Holy Spirit many, many times compared to water. Uh, The Lord says that he will rush through us. He'll fill us with rivers of living water. Uh, And and that is our... uh, the joy of our salvation, the promise in our salvation is that God says, I live in you. I come to live with you, and it's a permanent situation. Uh, and this is the great uh, difference between the New Testament Christian in the church age and all the believers that have gone before us. We have the first fruits, the experience of this experience that God wants for all believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit... I like to point out, because there's so many abuses, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of what we call the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so he's not a power or a force or anything like that. And and so often people deal with the Holy Spirit as if he's, I like to call him the crazy uncle in the church, you know, because you'll go to some church service and, you know, God loves all of his people and everybody that's a Christian, but you'll go to some services and there's, they whip it up into a frenzy, right? And it's like, woo and, and all this kind of, you know, handkerchief preaching, we like to call it, where the hanky comes out and there's, and there's like one thing said over and over and over again. And then finally, it seems like we've gotten crazy enough for the Holy Spirit to be here. And then he does immensely crazy things. And it's all really sad uh, because, you know, Paul corrected all that in 1 Corinthians 14. Then on the other hand, you've got all these super conservative people who say, yeah, none of that exists anymore. That's all gone. No gifts of the spirit in the miraculous way. God addressed all of that in 1 Corinthians 14. You think you could get these people together and say, can we just go through 1 Corinthians 14 and, and see what it actually says? Uh, I'm in following a thing online right now where this one group keeps saying the gift of tongues is a known foreign language like, you know, Spanish or Esperanto. <laughs> and I keep sending 1 Corinthians 14 to where it says if you speak in a tongue, you speak to God and not man because no one can understand you. And it's driving me crazy. So anyway, I just want to, you know, that's what... The Holy Spirit, we, and it's, it's so much more profound. It's like, oh, the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I can do what God asked me to do. I don't. Do I always do it perfectly? No. Do I almost never do it perfectly? Sure. But God is working in me. He saved me, and he's saving me, and he's working in me, and he's creating what he wants to in me. And, and so what he tells me to do, I'm empowered to do. It's, it's an ability. And so people say, oh, I read this. How do I do that? You do it. You'll do it haltingly. You'll do it poorly. Uh, but let the Lord lead you, and, and, and he will. You, you, you remember the disciples, how they didn't know what was going on half the time? That's, that's me. I don't know about you, but let the Lord do it. Verse 3, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods. 
And that's the experience we're to have with him as a person, an abundant experience. The second half of Isaiah that started in chapter 40 is a 150 years in advance prophecy about Jerusalem being conquered by Babylon. And the Jews would then be removed uh, to there as captives. Isaiah also sees way beyond that to the time of Jacob's trouble or what we call the Great Tribulation and the return of the Messiah to establish and reign on earth for a 1,000-year period called the Millennium. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on every Jew living at that point will lead to the national regeneration of Israel. Then God will restore his people to their land. Isaiah is talking, describing about the earth being transformed when he talks about this abundant water such as grass and willows springing up everywhere. So it's not just a, it's a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, but in that time, there will be an abundance on the earth and a population explosion. And, and you get all these different clues to the millennium uh, as you read through Isaiah. It'd be fun one time just as a separate devotion, whatever you're doing for your devotions in the morning or evening or whatever, you say, well, I'm going to read Isaiah slowly whenever I have a chance. And I'm going to just kind of underline or outline or note every passage. I think this could be talking about the future millennium because there's nothing that, like that that's happened now. For example, there's several passages that talk about animals hanging out together and with your kids, you know, vipers and lions and all that. And you think, well, that's not going on right now. Uh, you know, so maybe that's a, that's a future promise that the world is going to be at peace, such a peace that even animals are cool. We have one cat. We, I feel like it's the pink panther. I really do, you know, for those of you who remember. This cat, he's our garage cat. We have two indoor cats, a porch cat and a garage cat. And um, the garage cat, Mr. Bubbles, uh, you can tell. As I walk by him, he'll tense up. I mean, you can see the musculature in his eyes. And he wants to jump at me like this in slow motion <laughs> and grab my legs. I know he's going to kill me one day. He's going to trip me. And, and now, so I'm, he's there, and, and I can't get out of the garage because he's right there. And I'm grabbing stuff to, you know, I'm, I'm telling him I'm going to kill you, uh, you know. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for it. I had Levi's on. He got right, his claw went right through my pants. I'm bleeding. Anyway, I needed to tell somebody that. Verse 5, one, I have no idea where that came from, but it was fun. It was kind of, we have a little, we shared that moment together, right? right? I've been here, what, 38 years? I want to share moments with you <laughs> now at the end. But anyway, one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Among other things, these are all different ways we might give testimony or witness to folks. The millennium begins populated exclusively by mortal believers. Jesus comes back in the second coming. He separates believers from non-believers, unbelievers, calls the believers the sheep. He says, you guys in your mortal bodies, you survived the great tribulation. You're going to be the first citizens of the kingdom. And then they'll reproduce and, you know, repopulate the kingdom. Their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren down the line will be sinners that need to get saved. And so, uh, you know, we and our glorified bodies and different entities and all will be witnessing during that time. In fact, it is, the great, it is another great time of witnessing, just like the Great Tribulation is. Uh, and so uh, 
you know, too bad a lot of them will, not, a multitude of them will still rebel against the Lord after the thousand years. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. The Lord promised a Redeemer the moment Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned in the Garden of Eden, a Redeemer who could and would purchase the human race out of slavery to sin and Satan and death. And the Bible really is the story of the Redeemer and his work of redemption, of his coming and him accomplishing his work. In the Revelation, we're told four times that Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Coupled with what we read here, we are confident that Jesus Christ is God. God the, Holy, God the Father is God, Jesus Christ is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, not three gods, one God and three persons, what we like to call the Trinity, what people point out who don't like it say, it's not in the Bible. It is taught in the Bible, but they don't use the word Trinity. Okay, there's a lot of words not in the Bible, right? So, uh, you know, it, it, we believe strong, we are Trinitarian, we believe strongly in the doctrine of the Trinity. Verse 7, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to me, to them rather. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Redemption was the Lord's plan from the beginning. He set it in motion, and it is following the order that he appointed for it. The Jews are the instrument on earth of revealing his redemption. They're the ones who show it. That which God declared to occur in the future did occur and will occur. This is an interesting thought just to meditate on. God is so God that even when Israel fails to be his witness, they are his witness, right? This plan that God has, it's foolproof. It's amazing. It's something only God could come up with. And so Israel, even today, is failing, right? Let me ask you this. Is Israel bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ? No. Jesus is not their savior. He will be, but he's not. They've not acknowledged him. So yet they continue to be a witness of sorts, in the future, we see some of the things in our prophecy update, you know, as far as just their existence is a witness. But in the future, they're going to be a witness that the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation has begun when they sign a peace treaty with a man who will turn out to be the Antichrist. That is the beginning of the great tribulation, by the way. It's when that treaty is signed. It's not the rapture. The rapture will take place before the tribulation. How much before, we don't know. It is not the trigger that starts the Great Tribulation. The peace treaty is. Again, in the future, people will understand that Daniel's last day's countdown is a literal chronology of the end times as they rebuild their temple. In the future, they'll witness that Satan has been cast down to earth and has only a little over 1,200 days to terminate all the Jews. And in the future, they will be a witness that God will keep every promise as he arranges to save them from the devil's savagery. So even in their unbelief, Israel is a witness to the world of the greatness of God. Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. In each, he ended saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
That means everything he promised one church applied to each church both then and now. And so whatever you uh, promise to the churches belongs to us and belongs to every church. It's not uncommon for believers to get a new name in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Abram was renamed Abraham. His wife, Sarai, was renamed Sarah. And Jacob was renamed Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus told Simon he would be called Peter. And so it's not an unusual thing that you and I are going to get a special name in heaven. Uh, that all, I don't know if it's, all, you know, I'm sure we'll use it. I mean, the Lord doesn't really tell us much about it. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to carry a rock around with my name on it. So who am I, you know, and stuff. But, but he's going to give us a white stone with our name on it, and it'll be a cool name, I hope. <laughs> I hope it doesn't describe, you know, something about our, you know, time here. I could be goofy, you know, from Disney. But anyway, uh, we're going to get a new name. Now, you know, so when you do these studies, like, well, you know, here's, this name means that, and here's what it was. It's all very technical. And all, but this is meant to be emotional and intimate. God says, you're looking at Jeshurun. Who? Jeshurun. I mentioned that a thousand years ago. Don't you remember? My special people. I always mention it in a poetic way. I, you know, you guys are blowing it. You're going to blow it. You just came through with Assyria and you repented and everything's great, but you're going to blow it again and have to go to Babylon. My Jeshurun, I love you. I'm never going to abandon you. What I've begun in you, I will continue to do. All these people who say that the church has replaced you, it hasn't. I love you just the same. And, and the Lord loves us that way. You, you, don't, you know, if you have a pet name for your husband or wife or kids, don't you get infuriated if somebody else calls them by that? No, I'm serious. Hey, sh- shut up. Get your own pet name. In fact, what, what do you have a pet name for my wife for? This is like, a, you know, we're crossing a line here, you know. So that's the idea. And Jesus, you know, Jesus says, hey, I have a pet name for you. It's me and you. And you know what? You're blowing it. Israel blew it. But this is who you are. And I will see it through. Are you living forward like you'll be renamed? In the remaining verses, the Lord takes idolatry head on. In a previous study, I reminded us that there is not one agreed-upon definition of idols and idolatry among theologians. The definition I'm using currently is idolatry refers to worshiping idols, images, or God substitutes. A description of idol worship may not be helpful in identifying God substitutes. Here's what I mean. We think about worshiping idols. We think about this microphone and me actually doing some kind of worship, you know, to it, talking to it, praying to it, I love you microphone, you know, those kinds of things. But the worst kind of idolatry is, is what's in our hearts. So let's use the red Ferrari 250 GTO I want as an example. Not to be specific, just a non-specific car. If I owned it, I'll tell you right now, I would not bow down to it or offer it gifts or sing to it and about it. Christmas morning, you wouldn't go out into the garage and see a bunch of gifts piled on top of it. So this is for you, Ferrari, my little schmoopy. But I wouldn't be in the clear regarding idolatry. When I was brand new to following Jesus, I read A Severe Mercy. I highly recommend it. It's an autobiography by Sheldon Van Auken relating his relationship with his wife, their friendship with C.S. Lewis, 
and their conversion to Christianity and a subsequent tragedy. Sheldon's wife, Jean, had a schmoopy name, Davy. Sheldon and Davy didn't want anything to become an idol. Sheldon recalled overvalued possessions we decided were a burden. And so expensive, overvalued things, material things, could possibly, you know, take their attention away from the Lord and one another. So when they brought a brand new car, he said, when we got our first glossy new car, we hit it severely with a hammer to dent it. To inspire you. The ushers are in the parking lot right now with hammers looking for newer vehicles. And by newer, I mean newer than 2019 because that's the year of my vehicle. And so that's an old relic, but you'll thank us later. We form idols that are not objects at all. In fact, the most prevalent idolatry is unseen except by God. It resides in your flesh, in your unredeemed natural body with its propensity to sin. In Colossians 3.5, the Apostle Paul warned, covetousness is idolatry. Now, one reason it is, is because when you covet, you're saying you can't be satisfied unless you have that person or that possession or that position or that power that you covet. It's a declaration that Jesus is not enough for you because you want something else besides what he's provided you. One commentator wrote, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in the Lord. Contentment is only found in seeking first the kingdom of God, looking forward to life with Jesus in the eternal city whose builder and maker is the one who knows you by the endearing name you will receive when you see him. Now, verses 9 through the end uh, are pretty self-explanatory. There's really nothing to comment on. I mean, we could, but there's, it's obvious that idols are absurd and foolish because, you know, as you, you make them for yourself <laughs> and, and, and they can't do anything. This microphone, microphone can't do anything except break uh, and throw out, you know, wild sounds and stuff like that. I mean, somebody made it. It's not a God. And so that's all just ridiculous. In fact, in the message version, at the end of verse 20, it says, this is crazy. And so that's the deal. So we're not, we're not going to read through those again. Uh, I'd encourage you to read the chapter again. But it just reinforces the stupidity of idols. What I'm saying today is that believers are encouraged to live forward. Abraham waited for the city, which has a maker, uh, foundations rather, whose builder and maker is God. He was pressing forward to get to that city. Read Hebrews 11, you find that him and the rest of the patriarchs, they never achieved the things that they were looking forward to because it was so far in the future, but they set their sights on it. The apostle Paul wrote, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ. And so again, Pressing forward, and the writer to the Hebrews says, I lay aside the weight of sin that would bog me down. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is what we're all about uh, as Christians, and you know, knowing that we are living for the future. And that's why we can uh, let the present kind of roll off of us sometimes. Sure, we care about things, just like the people in the world do who are not Christians, and we're not unfeeling. But this is not our home. 
and, and things are going to be taken away. It's not God's fault. It's not God's, uh, you know, uh, doing in the sense that, that he looks at me and says, I, I, you know, I'm going to strike you or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. We live in a fallen world. It's amazing that you don't have more tragedy in your life when you think about it. When you think about who, who's the ruler of this world? The devil? The interim ruler? Uh, what was he? He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Every day I don't get murdered is a plus. Maybe. Because I find out that sometimes there's things worse than dying. That's what Paul the Apostle says. He goes, you know, I want to die and go to be with Jesus. But the Lord wants me to do some ministry, so I'll just get stoned again and die and come back to life. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, the poor guy, you know, and stuff. So um, we live forward to see the city whose builder and maker is God and Jesus who is God. Corey Ten Boom once said, hold loosely to the things of this life so that if God requires them of you, it will be easy to let them go. I would not presume to hold a candle to her, but I would suggest a change to this quote. Hold loosely to the things of this life so that when God requires them of you, it will be easy to let them go. He will require things of you because love is jealous. And there's not room for anyone or anything other than Jesus in our hearts. And, and we, in our finer moments, we believe that. We know that. We want that. It's just so hard to achieve that in these bodies of flesh. And so the Lord works with us. And sometimes he has to take things away, important things, wonderful things, in order for us to see him in his glory in our lives.